Cahill's long throw, goalkeeper's come, hasn't got there, Harry Kewell, and then poked home by Tim Cahill! Australia have done it! Six minutes to go, and it's a landmark moment for Australian football! Tim Cahill has scored the nation's first ever World Cup Finals goal! He did it against the Ducks! Especially as they have the impetus. Aloisi, Cahill, Cahill, Tim Cahill has done it again, what a goal by Tim Cahill, 2-1 Australia, oh it's a wonderful moment in Kaiserslautern, and Tim Cahill has come off the bench and maybe won the match for the Socceroos, Aloisi, Paducah's in an offside position, Aloisi might go on his own, Aloisi! 3-1! It's all over! Three points for Australia! What about that? Japan have collapsed in the closing moments. And John Aloisi who wrote one chapter in Australian football history back in November 2005. Adds a little postscript for the Socceroos. That is the sound of pure joy, at least to Australian ears. I apologise to our Japanese listeners, which the latest Spicola metrics tell me there are two. Apologies to both of you. You're probably expat Australians anyway, but Simon Hill there calling the famous last eight minutes from Kaiserslautern in Germany at the 2006 World Cup when the Australian Socceroos first tasted World Cup glory. Simon Hill is my guest today, and he's going to be talking about the art and the craft of commentary. Is sporting commentary a speech? Maybe I'm stretching the premise of the podcast a bit, but it is kind of talking. And the motto of the website is, all speeches great and small. Surely it fits into speech great or small. And anyway, who cares? It's my podcast. I can do what I want. And here he comes. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields. If you lay down with dogs, you get fleas. Fraud, sham, and hypocrisy. Change within the system. The hollow man of anger and bitterness all must be left to a bygone age. I understand victory. I understand sacrifice. Speak over. I may not get there with you. And we as a people will get to the promised land. Speak over. Speakola with Tony Wilson. Hello and welcome. And as you probably got there from the introductory remarks, I am pretty excited about this episode. I am a big football fan, a Socceroos fan, also a Melbourne Victory fan, and also a Simon Hill fan. I regard him as pretty much the best commentator going around any sport in Australia. It's entirely possible that Simon Hill is dragging in a more footballish listener than we usually get for our speeches. And to those people, I'd like to say that this podcast, Speak Ola, has from the outset been supported by an avocado producer, Greenskin and Purple Skin Avocados. If you haven't heard of them, 
That's because they mainly do wholesale. But you'll see their avocados. They're in the supermarket and they are resplendent. You'll only have to trolley one, put it through checkout, carefully place it in your shopping bag, take it home, cut it open, and you will see the perfect flesh for which the green skin and the purple skin avocado are famous. They've been at it for over 20 years. They're scientific. They're particular. They care about avocados as much as I care about speeches and you care about football. To the people who have heard me talk about green skin and purple skin avocados before and have wondered, how can I buy some green skin and purple skin avocados? You can't. Just go to their website and learn about avocados. They're about knowledge and love. Greenskinavocados.com.au And before I get to the start of the episode proper, I will just say that there is an ability to support the podcast, to keep it going. I've set up a Patreon page, like so many other podcasts. There's also the ability to give a one-off donation through PayPal or DonorBox. So if you want to help us out, if you want to keep the podcast going, you can do that. Another way of supporting us without spending any money is to leave a five-star rating and a review on iTunes. That apparently helps. Help push us up. Let other people know about the podcast. Share this one with a football fan. I imagine we'll get a slightly different listenership for the Simon Hill episode than we would have got had we, say, gone with Anthony Albanese's budget reply speech. Contact me if you wish I had have done Anthony Albanese's budget reply speech. Maybe that's for next episode. This episode stands as the podcast equivalent of the 25-metre curling right footer past the outstretched arm into the top right corner. Simon Hill is such a good storyteller. He has a beautiful voice and he had an acoustically beautiful commentator's headset he could put on. So it really does sound like we're speaking in the same room together despite Simon being up there in Sydney and me being here in Melbourne. For overseas listeners, he has commentated with the BBC and ITV, but he eventually made his name here at SBS in Australia and then on to Fox Sports where his name is synonymous with the sport in this country. So here he is, Simon Hill. Well, we've had 20 guests on the podcast, and they've come in all shapes and sizes, but of all the guests so far, only one of them has ever made my ringtone, and that is our guest today. Thanks for joining us, Simon Hill. I'm very honoured that I was your ringtone. Oh. Am I still your ringtone, or is that long gone? <laughs> I, think it was a, I think it was an intervention from the family that just wanted, didn't want to hear... Tim Kale has done it again. <laughs> what a goal from Tim Kale every time someone called up. So um, it was it was binned eventually. But there was a glorious couple of years really when you were when you were pinging into my life regularly. Well, my apologies to your family for distracting them for all those years. <laughs> Wasn't my intention. Well, um, to get us to that point, which is such a, a meaningful moment, I guess, for me and, and millions of Australians who love sport, I thought I'd talk a bit about the art and the craft of commentary. And, and in my view, you're as good as we've got in this country. Um, tell, us a little bit about, tell us a little bit about how you came to it. What, what sort of a kid were you, Simon? 
<clears throat> like most kids growing up in Northern England, where I, I grew up, um, I was football mad, and it's never really left me, to be honest. Um, I was introduced to the game by my dad, who was, and still is, at 86, a mad Manchester City fan. My granddad was the same. My great-grandfather, I've told this story a few times, actually played for them in the 1890s. So this is a long family heritage of, of love for football, and in particular for Manchester City. So when I was four or five years old, you know, my dad brought out a football and we'd kick the ball around. Um, so I loved playing. And then when I was six, he took me to my first Manchester City game and uh, I just fell in love with my club, basically, uh, particularly those beautiful sky blue jerseys and Colin Bell in particular. And from that moment on, I wanted to be in football, you know, however I could. Obviously, I wanted to play the game professionally, but I knew pretty early, in fact, age 12, that I wasn't going to be good enough because a Manchester City scout actually came to watch the team that I played for when I was a junior. And I ran around like a madman for, you know, 90 minutes, desperately trying to catch his eye. No, nothing. <laughs> Crickets. So from that point on, I think even then I, I knew that I wasn't going to be good enough to play. So my next question was, okay, if I'm not going to be a professional footballer, how am I going to work in football? And obviously the journalistic thing was, you know, the next best thing. So even in those early days as a kid, I had that in mind. I had no idea I was going to get there, obviously. But uh, yeah, I think it was the seed had been planted even at that uh, stage of my life. And when you thought journalist, was it print journalist? Did you immediately think, oh, one day I'll mm. become a, a writer and I'll get in the newspaper and I'll follow them around that way? Or were you already, did you have your ears open to the sounds of the sport, the great commentators of the era? Well, I did have my ears open to you know some of those great commentators. In fact, my commentary idol, um, although I probably wouldn't have called him that at the time, but I loved listening to him, was a guy called Brian Butler, who, along with Peter Jones, worked on the old BBC Radio Two covering football. And in the days before the uh, you know modern ISDN hookups, they would travel all over Europe, all over the world covering football basically on what was a phone, uh, the old reporter phone, as I later found out when I started doing commentary. So these crackly lines, you know, from Eastern Europe, normally covering Liverpool in some place like Bucharest or Budapest. Um, and I just found it intoxicating. I loved all that. But I have to say, my ambition was always to write. I just wanted to write about football. And I, being a lefty, of course, I envisaged that I would be on The Guardian or The Daily Mirror in the UK never really gave broadcasting a moment's thought. And it wasn't until I went to university, I did a postgrad course, the NCTJ pre-entry course in newspaper journalism, which is a very long title. Did a little bit of print work, working for the news um, newspaper in, in Portsmouth. And then when I came out in 1991, there was a big recession on in the UK. So there weren't a lot of jobs in, in journalism, weren't a lot of jobs anywhere, to be honest. And I applied for so many and, and got nowhere. And I spotted this job for a radio station in South Wales called Red Dragon FM, writing adverts, commercial copywriting, basically. So I thought, well, in the current climate, I'm probably not going to get a journalistic job. So at least this is writing. So I applied for it and got a letter back saying, look, I don't think you're suitable really for this job, but we've got a job here as a sports reporter if you'd be interested in applying. So that's where my career path sort of changed almost before it began. And of course, that's what I wanted to do. I knew nothing about radio or broadcasting, but uh, Red Dragon was a good place to learn. And that's what I did. And I've sort of been on that path ever since. So Red Dragon in South Wales, do you remember the first time you picked up the microphone and, and had to string <laughs> some words together? 
Yeah, I do. Um, I, I remember, I think the first few months, I only just presented the sports bulletin. So I had to write them as well and present them. And look, you know, I was a reasonably confident speaker in public. I've never been shy to open my mouth. So, you know, I wasn't nervous about it, but obviously there, there is an art to it, even just presenting, you know, a few uh, lines of sports news. So, yeah, it took a while before I became, you know, fully comfortable on air. And then within a few months, of course, I was champing at the bit and I wanted to present the sports show and wanted to go out and cover games, uh, all the stuff that I loved. So it, it flowed on sort of quite naturally and quite quickly. And my progression was, you know, quite sharp. And w- within 18 months, I'd I'd left Red Dragon and I'd, I'd moved up into BBC local radio. So that, that's when my education really began, I suppose. And when do you start covering big-time professional football? When do you start calling games? It was back in the UK, wasn't it? Yes. Uh, this is always an interesting one because, you know, most commentators will tell you that they start off at, at the lowest rung of the level covering, you know, non-league football or the local Sunday league or something. My first ever commentary was Chelsea against Blackburn Rovers in the Premier League. <laughs> I, I didn't, you know, there's no half measures with me. Um, I, I'd sort of covered games in the lower leagues as a reporter for Red Dragon, but I hadn't actually done a full commentary. I'd done sort of snippets of commentary. And when I went to um, Radio Lancashire, which was my first uh, BBC local radio station, I was there with a guy called Guy Havord, who was my... Um, senior producer, and we sort of divided the you know the 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 work up between us. And when the new season came into view, which was 1993, um, he said to me, "Okay, opening weekend of the season, I want you to go down to London, and I want you to do second half commentary on Chelsea Blackburn." And I said, "Okay, you know I've never done full commentary before." And he said, "Well, let's see if you can do it." So that was it, basically. Down I went to Stamford Bridge, and I've. Barely stopped since. <laughs> well, how would you have prepared that day? You would have been crapping yourself, wouldn't you? See, I, I presume you just yeah. you would have done about twenty five hours of staring at names and numbers. Oh, yeah. Would you? Was, was that the <laughs> first day? Absolutely. And of course, you know, you got to remember that in nineteen ninety three, the internet didn't exist. Um, and there were no such things as Facebook or Twitter or, you know, websites. Or if they were, they were in their absolute infancy. So the way that you prepared for games in those days was very different to today. You know, I'd, I searched reference books. I used to have piles of the old Rothmans football yearbook with all the previous season stats. Obviously, there was no YouTube, so you couldn't, you know, look at clips of the of the previous games or anything like that. Um, and I remember faxing. Remember faxing? <laughs> I remember f- actually not faxing. I phoned up Chelsea and asked them to fax me pen pictures of their players, which they did. That's how we did it in those days. You know, it's it's almost I don't know. It feels like the Middle Ages, doesn't it, in comparison? But things move so quickly. Uh, you know, in those days in the office, you still had the old landline telephones and the the manual typewriter to to type out your bulletins and. The latest news came, you know, not online or via wire services. Well, they were wire services, but they came out of um, what they called a teleprinter, which was stationed in the corner of the newsroom, and you could hear it chugging away, you know, 24 hours a day. So it was, it was a different world, totally different world. But it is the same art. It's an art that's gone through, I guess, the whole broadcast era. We've had since we've had recorded sound, we've had elements of of recorded sport. What is the art form. I mean, 
you could argue I'm sort of self-indulgently stretching what has been a, a podcast about speeches to to include you know one of my real passions, which is sport and then sport commentary, and then the way that mm. commentary then I think crystallizes into a moment. W- what do you think the art is of commentary? It's a good question, and I think it's something that has many answers. The art initially is to do your research. That is so important, particularly today when your audience has access to just as much information, if not more, as you do. So you've got to be bang on the money. In terms of you know how you put together a commentary, well, every commentary is different because you are literally watching something unfold in a thousand different ways that you're not prepared for. Uh, at least in terms of, you know, you can't script it. So you've got to be ready. It's as simple as that. You've got to be ready for every eventuality. So Simon, that reminds me of the great Woody Allen line. I think I think it's a Woody mm. Allen uh, observation, which is that sport is the only art form where even the writers don't know how it's going to end. <laughs> it's true. It's so true. Um, you know, the only thing that you do know in a football game is that it's either going to be a win or a loss for either team or a draw. Those are, you know, those are the only outcomes that you know. Um, everything else is in the lap of the gods. And to be honest, that's what makes it exciting and so invigorating to be involved in. Now, obviously, if, you know, if you can talk underwater, as you know, hopefully I can, that helps. And you've got to be very uh, dexterous linguistically with, with your words because things move at a fast old pace. You know, a game of football in particular, it can really crack along at a fair old rate of knots. So you've got to keep up with it. You've got to know the right terminology you've got to know the rules to a large degree um you can opinionate a little bit but you don't want to opinionate too much certainly not as a a play-by-play caller that's what your your summarizer is there for and also in television you've got things like replay monitors and you've got stats and you've got producers and directors in your ear so it's it's not quite as straightforward as as everybody thinks and i've always likened it to this it's like trying to drive a car with a wobbly wheel And it keeps wanting to veer off either to the left or to the right. And your job is to keep correcting it and keeping it on the middle of the road because it can veer off in a million different directions. And if you're not careful, it can run away with you. So you've got to keep trying to bring it back to the center, keep repeating, you know, what what this means, the context of what you're seeing. People might be tuning in, you know, they might have missed the first 15 minutes. So you might have to remind them of the score on a regular basis. If you're working in radio in particular, if you're on TV, of course, you can see it in the top left-hand corner. Um, but you've got to be aware of you know a million different things, and it's uh, it's a tricky art form. And you know I've done it for thirty years, and I still think I've got an awful lot to learn about it. You know some of the other things don't talk too much, but don't talk too little. In television, you've got to talk around the pictures rather than describe what they are because people can see them. In radio, it's the other way around, where you know uh, silence is death. Whereas silence in television can be golden, and Richie Benno was, you know, the, the great exponent of that. Saying nothing can be just as important as saying something. So that there's there's lots of different elements that go up into making a commentator and a good commentary. And at the end of the day, and this is, you know, probably the most esoteric thing about it is, you can come away thinking, yeah, I did well today, and half the people might give you abuse because they think you didn't. So it's all subjective, you know, and commentators divide opinion in the same way that players and particularly referees do. Um, You know, half the people might love you, half of them might hate you. A lot of people think you're biased. That's the word we get most, you're biased. Let me tell you, 
you ain't got time to be biased. You're too focused. Even when it's your own team, you're too focused on what you're doing. I agree with pretty much everything you said then. But And one thing, about, especially the passion it evokes, the, the commentator's voice is in your ear so much that people truly loathe commentators. I think if you can come out as a commentator who is generally liked, given how present you are in the life and given the number of opportunities there are to be loathed, <laughs> uh, you're doing yeah, really well. So, so I mean, I think you're generally a, a popular commentator, but I presume you get some abuse out there, Simon? Oh, yeah. Blimey. Yes, of course. Every commentator gets abuse. And that's, to be honest, one of the reasons why I stayed off social media for so many years, because I just didn't want that extra pressure. You know, I put myself under enough pressure. I don't need, you know, to read 100 comments <laughs> abusing me to know that. I can get that at home. Um, but, you know, probably the biggest compliment you get is after you've done a game and you will get uh, four pieces of abuse and two of them are saying you're biased to one team and two of them are saying you're biased to another. And I've had that a few times. And when I read that, I always think, yep, I've done all right. <laughs> Take us back to the 90s again. Was there either a moment where you felt like, oh, this is crashingly difficult and I've, I've made a big mess of it? Um, or was there one where you thought, I'm on my way up, I'm, I'm doing well at this, this is my life? Yeah, a couple of examples. The, uh, the first one of thinking, blimey, this is difficult and I've stuffed it up. I did a, a very low-key game in the lower leagues of England. I think it was Mansfield against Preston, a, a game in the third division uh, at Field Mill. And I, this was a radio commentary, and I went along and I was happily doing full commentary on my own, which we always did in those days. And I'd taken my dad along because my dad loves football and he's always, you know, are you, where are you going this week? Can I come? And most of the time I'd say, look, you can't, Dad, because it's a press box. But on this particular occasion, there was a couple of seats spare. So I said, look, come along, sit next to me, but stay quiet, you know, say nothing. So anyway, I'm, I'm happily doing commentary and Preston scored through a guy called Tony Ellis, who I always remember. And as I was describing the goal, out of the corner of my eye, I saw in the, in the director's box beneath me a bit of a commotion going on. Some guy had keeled over and was obviously unwell and was having, you know, people around him trying to take his jacket off. And then the paramedics arrived. The guy had obviously had a heart attack, okay? And I was sort of half aware of this and still trying to, still trying to call the game. And because I was young, inexperienced, the excitement of the moment, commentary does strange things to your brain. You can get disconnected from reality. And my dad, who was trying to help me, to be honest was trying to get some information. And he found out that this guy was a Preston director and that he'd had a heart attack. So he wrote it on a slip of paper and put it underneath my nose. Now, me being young, I just looked at it and repeated it verbatim. And as soon as I'd said it, I thought, imagine if that guy's family's listening to this back home. I didn't name him because I didn't know who he was. But clearly, you know, there's only half a dozen Preston directors. So for the rest of the game, I was thinking, I have made such a big mistake. And it was a big mistake. Um, and to be honest, I thought I might lose my job over that. I was only 25, 26. But thankfully, the the guy who was the boss at Radio Lancashire, a guy called Steve Taylor, had a chat with him on the Monday. He's like, look, you know, I, I understand how that mistake happened, but obviously that's something that you can't do again. So that was, that was a big sort of wake-up call for me. You know, you've you've got to keep your brain engaged in all things, not even just football sometimes when you're at a football game. The other example of, of thinking, well, not that I've made it, but wow, isn't this great? I'm doing okay, 
is the first Premier League game, obviously, was Chelsea-Blackburn. But also, 95-96, I was working for the BBC World Service, and I call the FA Cup final. Now, for a kid growing up in England... Mm. Um, you know, that's something really special. At Wembley, the old Wembley, uh, two teams that didn't particularly like, Man United and Liverpool. But, um, yeah, that, that was very, very special. And, uh, again, I think seeing, you know, how, how proud my dad was when I told him that I was calling the cup finally, he's like, wow, that's pretty good, son. Yeah. And it was. Yeah. And then Australia, you become synonymous with football in Australia and, and football calling. But how do you come to us? What, what's the story of coming here? <laughs> Yeah, it's a, it's, it's a good question. I've answered this one a few times as well. Um, so after I left the BBC in, in 2001, I went to ITV. They were just setting up a new TV channel called the ITV Sport Channel, strangely enough. And I thought it was going to be there for 15, 20 years. You know, they had a great plan to cover football. And um, unfortunately, within 12 months, it all went wrong. And they didn't have a good business plan. The, the network went into administration and we were all made redundant. So in 2002, I sort of freelanced for six months, but I was looking around for that next opportunity. And during one of my sort of down periods, I went over to Korea to watch the World Cup in 2002. And on the back end of that, I came to Australia for five days to see an old mate of mine that I'd worked with at the BBC uh, called Rob Minchell, big city fan like me, a mank. Um, He'd been out here a few years. And he said to me, you know, SBS are looking for a commentator. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. He's like, you should go for it. You know, you'd be great. I was like, nah, they're not going to want me. You know, I'm there over the other side of the earth. I don't know who I am. No, no, you should go for it. And to be honest, he went on about it for so long that more to shut him up than anything else. When I got back to the UK, I said, look, I'll send in a CV and a showreel thinking that will be it. And I did. And uh, yeah, to my amazement, Ken Ship from SBS got in contact a couple of weeks later and said, look, we're really interested. Do you want to come to Australia? Now, the, the strange thing was is I actually, at the same time, had an offer to sign for Sky Sports in the UK. And at the time, you know, and they still are, the big player in the UK. And I had a big decision to make. And a lot of people thought I'd made the wrong one um, by not signing for Sky. <laughs> you know, why do you want to go to Australia? Where are you going? Australia? For, to work for who? SBS. What are they? And it's, you know, it was a fair question. I didn't know the answers, to be honest, but I'd had, you know, such a bad experience at ITV because I thought that was my future and, you know, it had turned out not to be the case. I think I was just at the point in my life where I was, I was ready to try something a little bit different. I'd always wanted to live overseas and experience, you know, different lifestyle, etc. So when this appeared, I thought, if you don't do it now, and I was 35 then, if you don't do it now, you'll never do it. So I decided to give it a go and uh here i still am 18 years later you can't get rid of me now i'm going to take you back to very happy times um we like to have feature speeches here on the speak Ola podcast and and for that we drag out a specific little item of audio and the one i'm going to go with as you can no doubt guess is this one here's aloisi for a place in the you world cup for us he's yeah! Well, 
Simon, it doesn't get any more special for me than that. The 16th of November, 2005, a date etched in the brain of many Socceroos fans. And in my case, I watched the Socceroos lose in 1997 at the MCG and made a vow in the stands that day. It was falling in love with the code, really, because I'd never felt that way at a sporting event. And I vowed that having missed out in such a tragic way, I would see the Socceroos qualify wherever it happened in the world. And, and I went on vigils to Uruguay and, uh, and it's, ultimately it's, it's turned me into a travelling Socceroos fan, which has been wonderful. But take us to this red letter day, uh, the 16th of November 2005. How long had you been in the job? What were your expectations? Talk us through it. Well, I'd been in the job at SBS for nearly two years then. And uh, some people might remember in Australia, I'd just come off the back of hosting the Ashes Cricket Series, which was huge for me and the country and for SBS, to be honest, because it was such a brilliant series, the closest they'd been in, in many, many years. So I had a, I had a huge 2005. And then on the right on the back end of it, of course, was these two qualifiers against Uruguay. Now, I'd, I'd been in Montevideo four days prior for the first leg. So by the time I got back to Sydney, I was pretty jet-lagged, pretty tired, and I knew how important this game was for the country and for the sports in Australia. We just set up the A-League and the boost of you know Australia qualifying for its first World Cup finals in 32 years was would have been massive. So we knew how important this was. Um, I've said this on many occasions that night is not my favourite in professional terms. I know a lot of people remember it differently because the results, and there's actually you know, a good lesson in this for all commentators, it ain't about us, it's about what happens on the pitch. And people always remember that with such joy and positivity, even around the call. Let me tell you, professionally, the call was horrible. It was awful. Um, you know, mine wasn't great, and I had Craig Foster yelling in my ear because he was overly emotionally involved in it. If you break it down, you know, in a purely professional sense, it was pretty damned ordinary. However, none of that matters because the Socceroos won, and that's what it was about. And in retrospect, uh, you know, I'm really grateful to have been involved in in that night, and happy that people remember it in such a great way because. I remember coming away from the stadium that night. And look, I was delighted Australia qualified, as everybody was. But I wasn't happy with, you know, my performance that night, nor of, you know, mine and Craig's performance together, uh, because we knew it was it was pretty ordinary. But that's, you know, that's the way things go. You only get one shot at it. And as luck would have it, because the Socceroos won, it's been remembered in a very nice and positive way. And for that, I'm very grateful and very damned fortunate, let me tell you. Here is Kuehl. His first touch, Chipperfield. Finding Cahill. Can't tight the spaces. Here's Harry Kuehl. Oh, it's hit. And it's, it's in. Still there. Australia have scored. Marco Bresciano. 33 minutes played. And Telstra Stadium erupts. Australia are level. What a moment. So the first goal that went in from Bresciano, wasn't it? The That yes. was called in a competent way. And, and <laughs> I mean, Fozzie was a hard... It would have been hard to work with him because he, he's got mm. 15 years of baggage at this point, hasn't he? He, he yes. is in... 
he's in no state to be able to be an objective expert comments man. And really, there have been plenty of examples of great sporting events where the tide turns towards partisanship from the commentators. I mean, that the, the greatest call of the Maradona goal, the second great goal in the 86 World Cup against England, is the, the Argentinian call where they start yelling genio, you know, genius, genius at the end of it. There is a place for hyper-partisanship, isn't there? Um, possibly. I, I think that the difficulty for me was, having come through the BBC school, and this is going to sound terribly highbrow and old-fashioned, but it's true. You, you, you were told that editorial, you know, non-partisanship was your job as a commentator. No matter who you were calling for, you were always supposed to be neutral, And I still had that very much in my head. Now, to be fair, you know, as the years have gone on, I've probably relaxed that a little bit. But in those days in particular, I was determined that I was going to be, you know, right down the middle and to try and be as fair as I I possibly can be. And obviously, it it didn't particularly work out that way uh, because in large part, Fozzie was, you know, so emotionally invested. And look, I understood why he was, you know, emotionally invested in it. But, But I think... Had Australia lost, and of course, you know, they were it could have gone either way in penalties. I think that call would perhaps have been received very differently, but uh, I don't know, and I'm pleased that, that we'll never know. Um, because it's it's very nice to, to be associated with you know with that particular moment uh, and for it to be remembered so fondly. You know, it's as a commentator, you're lucky if you get you know one of those moments per career. I've had a few. So I'm, I'm very fortunate, really. Before I get to another one of my favourites, the one that made the ringtone, can you take us back to really post the Schwarzer save, the second save, the one where Fozzie <laughs> shrieks, you know, yeah. we've that's as big as we've seen. It's a huge save, yeah. a huge save. That's the biggest we've seen <laughs> in Australia. A great one to save. Schwarzer just uh, has a little mind game with Salajet, asking whether the ball was on the spot. Here is Salajet. It's as big as we've ever seen in Australia. I'm sorry. I'm sorry it is. It's as big as we've ever seen under pressure. It's the sort of heart that you need to make World Cups. Mark Schwarzer, you are a champion. What happens next in that commentary box? 
Well, what happened next was obviously Fozzie was gone. You know, emotionally <laughs> he was all over the place. So I was on my own basically. And uh, amid all the tumults, I saw out the corner of my eye Johnny Aloisi striding very purposefully with his head down, studying concentration, walking up to take the next penalty. And look, call it tiredness, emotion, or whatever it was, jet lag from Montevideo. I remember thinking, my God, if he scores this, is that it? And, and I had that moment where you have the complete mental blank. So you can hear this in the call a little bit, as I say. So that means that if Australia can can score this goal, they will be there. And whilst I was doing that, I had grabbed Nick Christou, who is uh, one of the producers at SBS, literally by the lapels, and asked him to confirm, in you know, eye to eye, that what I was saying was actually correct. And Nick had a moment of blind panic as well because I'd thrust this responsibility <laughs> on him out of, out of nowhere. And he did a, a, a quick bit, a bit of, um, you know, uh, mathematical gymnastics in his head and just about got the thumbs up that what I'd said was correct as, as Johnny took a step back. And, you know, my next line was, here's Aloisi for a place in the World Cup. Now, that means that if John Aloisi can score this goal... Australia will be there. Are you sure? I'm trying to do my maths. Four two. Hardly, four two. He wins it for it. us, John. Here's Aloisi for a place in the you World Cup. For us. He yeah! scores. Australia have done it. John! Come on, John Aloisi, the Confederations on, Cup hero, has done Go it on, in the biggest game of all. Thankfully, I got it out. <laughs> <laughs> and, and do you have a – when we get away from the art towards the craft, is there a certain thing that works or that you will favour for a key moment like that, the last penalty in a penalty shootout? A, is, is, is something very crisply true um, the way to go or does it change each time? Do you, do you know what you're doing there? Yeah. It all depends upon context. All depends upon context. Now, you know, had uh, Mark Schwartz not made that brilliant save prior to Johnny taking that next penalty, if Australia had been, you know, 2-0 up and it was the third kick, it would have still been a massive moment, but it wasn't quite the knife edge that we had that night against Uruguay where it still could have gone either way had Johnny missed his penalty. So, you see, it, it's, it's about context. I always use this example as well that, you know, when Alessandro Del Piero made his home debut for Sydney, I don't know if you remember that game against the Newcastle Jets of 35,000 people mm. there. They'd all turned up to see Del Piero and they wanted to see him score. Now, I had a little line in my head that was ready for Del Piero if he, if he scored a goal, but to use it, it still had to be the right context. Had he scored his first goal from two inches out and it had a bit rebounded off his backside over the line, the line, you know, me eulogizing Del Piero's talent wouldn't have worked because it was a tap-in. 
But the fact that he scored a free kick from 25 metres and bent it past the wall and through the keeper was perfect, you know. So I could use that. Del Piero! That's what they came to see. That's why Sydney FC paid the money. That is the measure of the man. You know, you've still got to, um, even if you prepare the odd little line here and there, you've still got to know that it's the right context to use it. Now, to be fair, for that penalty for you know Australia for Johnny Aloisi, the line, here's Aloisi for a place in the World Cup, which I've heard a million times since, uh, that certainly wasn't scripted because how could I have known? Yeah. I couldn't have known <laughs> that it was going to be for a place in the World Cup or indeed that it was going to be John Aloisi that might have sent us there. So, you know, most of the time you are reacting literally in the moment and the lines either come out perfectly or they don't. And, you know, the, the better commentators deliver better lines they're not. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, well, Simon, I, I'm, I am actually physically bursting with joy again thinking about it. And <laughs> this is the effect that sport has on some of us. And, and the, the night explodes into fireworks as John Aloisi runs with his shirt whirling above his head and, and them all trying to, to get to him. And and meanwhile, you're still trying to talk, but... Um, but Fozzie is throwing just <laughs> exclamations into the ether. Yep. He's got um, he yells out, um, "Johnny, go on, my son!" I think at one point. Um, yep. uh, yeah. Ray, Ray Bart, <laughs> Johnny Warren. Did he say Ray Bart? <laughs> yeah, there was. I think Ray Bart's made an appearance at, at some stage. But, and Johnny uh, Warren. He said that he wanted to <laughs> say Johnny Warren told us so, but he didn't get the whole way through it. Yeah. But Johnny Warren, I actually love that he just says the names and. And the, the whole effect, I mean, it, maybe it is, um, you know, horribly unprofessional, but it is, it's part of the, the folklore now. But then, but then you say a line, and I did wonder whether this was scripted, because I think if, if it's out of control and, and popping with the fireworks for a moment, there's, it does get dragged back to earth with the reality of the achievement. And that's when you refer to how long Australia had been out of the World Cup. I think you said it was... Uh, was it 32 years? 31 years, yeah. 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 That bit. Eight months, how many days? Was, was that Yeah, look, I mean, I had that written down, obviously, because um, otherwise you're not going to remember those specific numbers off the top of your head. I had, you know, a couple of key things scribbled down because, of course, you know, when you're calling a moment of that significance that hasn't happened in over three decades – you know, you want to get it right and you don't just want to repeat over and over, we've done it, we're there, yes. Um, you know, you want to have, I think, something that, that that means something and that resonates down the years. So, you know, when you when you call in big moments like that, sometimes it's helpful to have a couple of pointers. So, yeah, I had those dates written down. I'm not ashamed to admit that. And again, you know, it's about inserting them into the right moments, which let me tell you with Fozzie there, yelping was pretty damn difficult. <laughs> um, so I got, you know, I got a few of the, the lines out that I, that I wanted to. And again, I think, you, you know, it was about putting it all into context about what that victory meant, the historical significance, the emotion of it all. And also just in, you know, in terms of the night, I remember thinking, making reference to Hus Hiddink being a legend and a genius. And it's ended in success. And Kuz Hiddink is a legend. Oh, he's a freak. He's a genius. And his legend grows. Kuz Hiddink has succeeded. Before him, Frank Arrow, Terry Venables, Eddie Thompson, Frank Farina. All tried so hard. But tonight, 
is Australia's night. They've deserved it. They've earned it. They said it was their time. It is their time. I tell you what, Greg, may not have been born in Australia. But tonight, I am, you are, we are Australia. People forget this because the mists of time shroud everything that six months prior to that, they'd gone to the Confederations Cup and they'd lost all three games. Frank Farina was sacked. You know, the national team was in complete disarray, really. And Hus came along and within two or three months had gelled it into this super competitive unit that had, that had you know, gone to the World Cup. It was an amazing story. Um, still is today. To beat a team of the quality of Uruguay, this is the other thing we forget. You know, they had Ricardo Morales. They had um, Lugano. They had uh, Alvaro Recoba. They were a bloody good side and they could have so easily won that night so you know to get over the line and and make it to the finals and I was also you know I wanted to put it into context in terms of the game itself because and you know this Tony you know our game in this country it gets a lot of abuse it gets a lot of stick Um, it's you know it's not the favoured sport in this country and, and that was almost like a lifting of a great weight off the shoulders of a lot of football supporters in this country. I'd only been in Australia for two years. I felt it. Mm. I knew how much that meant to football people, let alone the country. I knew the country would celebrate because it always does when it's Australia winning something. But for football fans, this was really, really important, really special, uh, particularly with the A-League having just kicked off. And then I knew we had a whole six, seven months build up towards the World Cup in Germany to come as well. It was terrific. And was that your first World Cup or did you say that you were in Japan, Korea as well? I'd, I'd been, I was in J- Japan, Korea as a fan. I'd also gone to the World Cup in France in 98 for the BBC. So it wasn't my first World Cup. It was actually my third, but it was my first actually calling games. So that was very special as well. Yeah. And we all marched into it and I climbed that hill in Kaiserslautern as you did, Simon. <laughs> the and, Betzenberg. And went through the gates right next to George Negus with Negus written on his back. And, and we go in and we don't know what to expect. And, and there's been... I guess, um, as you said, the Confederations Cup, we were outclassed and we were playing the the regional rival in Japan or the one that's become the regional rival. Can you tell us the way that game unfolded uh, until we get to the bit where you know my where you become my ringtone? <laughs> um, yeah, I remember being more nervous for that game than the Uruguay game, actually, because all of a sudden this was the World Cup. It wasn't just about getting there anymore. This was about the World Cup. And it was a blisteringly hot day, as I'm sure you remember. I walked the Betzenberg Hill as well, was sweating by the time I got to the top of it. Took my place in the commentary position, had done all my research. I remember phoning home and speaking to my wife and and saying, uh, you know, what's it like over there? And there was a lot of noise behind her. And she was out at a fan fest in Sydney. I said, it sounds a bit noisy there. She said, yeah, there's about 10,000 people here. I was like, Wow. Okay, and that's like two, you know, two o'clock in the morning in Australia. So that sort of struck home to me just how big this game was, even back home in the middle of the night. So I remember being quite nervous until the game kicked off, and then you know, when a game of football kicks off, it's it's a bit weird. You sort of get into a groove. It's either a World Cup in Kaiserslautern or a wet, you know, Wednesday in Wigan. It doesn't. It's still a game of football, so you get into a sort of a rhythm. I also remember that obviously Japan took the lead through a, a goal from Shunsuke Nakamura that's probably had a hint of a foul in it. Mm. And at half time, 
I remember sitting down for a little bit of a break and Santo Chilaro came up towards me. I thought, oh, there's Santo. I said, hi, Santo. And he launched into this rant about the referee. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, you know, even, even uh, you know, world-class comedians, famous comedians are, are so caught up in all this and all he wanted to do was talk about the referee. So, yeah, that's how it went until those those crazy last 10 minutes. Uh, just before we get to them, I know there's a famous story for Australian fans um, of Santo Chilaro, who is a comedian with the group working dog that um that mark viduka bailed him up in the rooms after that win and all santo <laughs> wanted videos all santo wanted to talk about was um was the win and said mark you've you've done us so proud you've changed the sport in this country it's incredible that's what santo was saying and look we're going crazy in there santo you got any late show videos or something yeah. <laughs> they needed you wanted uh, comedy videos oh, for the camp that's Dukes. Yeah. That's Dukes. So you take us to the last 10 minutes. Um, I was getting very scared. It was a very high level of anxiety that had built up, I think, amongst the fan base. And presumably, even as a new arrival in Australia, you had nerves in the pit of your stomach at that point. Yeah, well, I mean, I wasn't that new by then. And I think that, you know, the Uruguay game had been uh, quite a, a seminal moment for me as well. I'd been sort of quite, not detached from the national team, because I've called them a few times, but... I don't know whether they – I'd sort of identified them as being my team up until the Uruguay game. And after that, everything changed. And then I was, you know, emotionally connected to them as well. I wanted them to win. It wasn't just my job. I wanted them to win. So those last 10 minutes, I remember thinking, yeah, this is getting away from them. And then they brought on Timmy Cale, and I, I remember delivering the line, which people thought was a sponsored line. I can assure you it wasn't. I just said, because uh, Timmy, if you remember, he was the face of Sanitarium, the Weetbix commercials yeah. at the time. So I remember when he came on, and Australia still 1-0 down, saying, I hope he's had his Weetbix this morning. <laughs> um and and uh, I remember a few people getting angry about that afterwards, saying, "Oh, you know, you're sticking commercial sponsors into games." I said, "No, I, you know, it's literally just something off the top of my head." Anyway, he added his week big suddenly because yeah. he, he came on and scored two belting goals. Um, and that, that, yeah, those are you know those are really big moments. And again, I knew that uh, had they scored that once they scored that first goal, that was the nation's first ever at a World Cup final. So, well, what, you know, what an honour for a foreigner to come in. And after three years, be able to call that on national TV in Australia. So it was brilliant. Here's long throw. Goalkeeper's come. Hasn't got there. Harry Kuehl. And then poked home by Tim Cahill. Australia have done it. Six minutes to go. And it's a landmark moment for Australian football. Tim Cahill has scored the nation's first ever World Cup finals goal. He did it against the Ducks. Especially as they have the impetus. Aloisi. Cahill. Cahill! Tim Cahill has done it again! What a goal by Tim Cahill! 2-1 Australia! Oh, it's a wonderful moment in Kaiserslautern! And Tim Cahill has come off the bench and maybe won the match for the Socceroos. And when you hear that, Simon, that gets played so often. Both of the goals get played so often. But the um, are, you, are you happy with the commentary on the two of them? <laughs> yeah, happier than I was for the Uruguay game. Yeah, they're they're okay. And the Johnny Aloisi goal that came afterwards as well. Aloisi. Paducah's in an offside position. Aloisi might go on his own. Aloisi! 3-1! It's all over! Three points for Australia! 
what about that? Japan have collapsed in the closing moments. And John Aloisi, who wrote one chapter in Australian football history back in November 2005, adds a little postscript for the Socceroos. That I'd, I'm, I'm always been much more satisfied with the way, you know, that the World Cup calls went in general. Uh, maybe it's because I was more at ease with it. Maybe it's you know just the way the games went. Maybe it's because I didn't have Fozzie yelling me. I don't know. But yeah, that World Cup was was terrific, and I really enjoyed the experience. And again, you know, very grateful to to have had that opportunity. Really, and something like the. Tim Cale has done it again. What a goal from Tim Cale. Um, obviously, it can't be scripted. Um, and is it somehow riding a wave? Like, what even is it? Is it is it to do with crack of voice? Is it to do with tone? What are you aiming for in these things where you know a, la- a nation is losing its mind? Well, I, th- I think what you're trying to achieve is uh, reflecting the moment emotionally for the audience and, and what they're feeling. Now, you know, when I listen back to those goals, you can tell that I'm not just doing it for effect. I'm excited. And I was. You know, I knew what those moments meant to people back home. I knew what they meant to me uh, and to everybody, you know, wearing the green and gold down on the pitch. So in that moment, those goals are actually in some ways quite easy to call because you can literally just let your emotion run riot. And I did for those goals because it was that sort of an occasion. Now, not every goal is like that. Obviously, you know, some goals scored in friendlies, even if they're 35-yard howitzers um, and they're brilliant goals, they don't necessarily have the meaning. So, again, it's about context. Context is everything. What does it mean, both in terms of the outcome but also the emotion for people watching? It's an emotional game, this, and you've got to reflect that. And are there moments in football history where you just marvel at the commentary, where you say that is where you're aiming? Um, can you think of any oh, favourites? Yeah. Um, uh, look, there, there's you know my idol, Brian Butler, calling the, the, the brilliant Maradona second goal. Not the handball goal, the, the second goal against England. Uh, the World Cup 1986, and he's he's got this wonderful West Country burr, Brian Butler, uh, with the R's just roll a little bit at the end. And he's, uh, Diego Maradona picks the ball up on the halfway, goes past Fennec, goes past Butcher, and he goes past Shilton. And that is why Diego Maradona is one of the greatest players in the world. He twisted past the defender like a little eel. Maradona turns like a little eel and comes away from trouble. Little squat man comes inside Butcher, leaves him for dead. Outside Fennec leaves him for dead and puts the ball away. And that is why Maradona is the greatest player in the world. He buried the English defence. He picked up that ball 40 yards out. First he left one man for dead. First he went by Saxon. It's a goal of great quality by a player of the greatest quality. It's England the nil, Argentina two. The first goal should never have been allowed. But Maradona has put the seal on his greatness. He's left it thumbprint on this World Cup. He scored a goal that England just couldn't cope with. They couldn't face up to. It was beyond their ability. It's England nil, Diego Maradona two. Just beautiful intonation and phrasing and, you know, building to that lovely crescendo at the end. He was uh, absolutely terrific at it. Peter Jones, the same, is his sidekick. There are other examples. Uh, the Tyler, you know, Sergio Aguero goal, obviously. Again, not just the Aguero, 
but the pause that follows, you know, to let the crowd take over. Yeah. Because they're explaining the context for him. He doesn't have to get it. At Sunderland, Manchester United have done all they can. That Rooney goal was enough for the three points. Manchester City are still alive here. Balotelli, Aguero! Um, there are other commentators today that I, you know, my absolute favourites, I know people in Australia love Martin Tyler and I do as well, but my absolute favourite at the moment is John Champion. He is by far for me the best English speaking commentator in the world um, because he has such an economy of words that tells the story without having to go into all this, you know. And the roadrunner is on his way. Alonso, last man back, releases it. Arshavin. And I, I, one little example, the Manchester derby was against my team as well, which wasn't great at the time. But uh, Michael Owen, playing for Manchester United, scored, a, I think, a 90th-minute winner in a 4-3 classic. And the ball came over and he just went, Michael Owen wins it. And that was it. You know, sometimes you don't have to do the, the big flowery speech. He said it in a nutshell and the intonation was bang on. And is there one that's yours? Is the, if you had to say, look, here's my CV and this is the one I love best. Um, <laughs> I've, I've told you the ones I love best. Which which ones do you love best? Oh, there, there's a couple. Um, I like the Terry Antonis one because I've been reminded of that, scoring for Melbourne victory against Sydney in the finals. Antonis had no right to get through there, really, but still he goes on. O'Neill giving chase forlornly. Still Terry Antonis! Has he won it for Melbourne victory? The villain turned hero in navy blue runs to accept the adulation of the victory fans. Are they heading to a sixth grand final? Extraordinary. What a run. Melbourne victory upset the odds to book their spots in next weekend's grand final. Um, there are others going back many, many years. I remember calling an Alan Shearer goal when he was playing for Blackburn Rovers. That tells you how long ago it is. Um, and I said, after a, a brilliant goal, he scored at Allen Road against Leeds. You can't give him an inch because he takes a mile because um, he'd found space somehow impossibly. And, you know, there, there are little sort of one-liners. You go, yeah, that was okay. I quite like that one. The Del Piero goal, I like. The, the goals that Timmy scored at the World Cup, they'll, you know, live long in the memory. There, there's a few, to be honest. But, uh, yeah, they we're unfortunately in a little Simon Hill hiatus. Um, Post-COVID, it seemed that uh, Fox Sports decided to go in different directions. Is there is there a story to tell there? Are you able to tell it? 
Well, I mean, the story really is Fox Sports is to tell, not mine. You know, it wasn't my choice to go. Uh, I've said this before, it was both a shock but not a surprise. You're right that they've been going in a different direction for a long time. It had become quite clear to me that my face really didn't fit and they decided that they no longer required me. So, you know, that's their choice, obviously. It's left me in a bit of a sticky situation in Australia, obviously, and in terms of my, you know, longer-term career because it was difficult to leave in the middle of a pandemic. Had things been normal, I probably would have returned to the UK. But given, you know, what's going on or has been going on over there, it probably wasn't the wisest thing to do. So I decided to tough it out for a year, which I've done. Um, That year is coming to an end. Uh, We will find out where the next TV deal goes in the next few weeks. As I've said all along, if they're interested in my services, I'd be more than happy to talk to whoever takes it over. If they're not, then I understand. You know, maybe it's time for the next generation or, or something different. And I will, you know, say adieu to Australia because I need to keep working. And if that work is not here for me, then it has to be somewhere else. So, you know, that will probably mean a return to the UK or somewhere else, but certainly the UK uh, initially, whilst I, you know, find out where it is I belong. Um, so that's that's basically where I'm at. It's, you know, it's been a tough 12 months. I'd, I've missed doing football commentary. I'm very disappointed, you know, I'm not doing it, but uh, certainly hoping that that's not the end of, you know, my career behind the microphone because I'm only 53. I hope I've still got a bit more to give. Um, but we'll see. You know, th- this industry, as you know, Tony, is is pretty brutal. It chews you up and spits you out at various points along the way. And the trick is once you fall off the horse is to try and get back on. So that's what I'm trying to do at the moment. Maybe the horse will kick a bit too hard this time. I don't know. But the, the honest answer is, you know, I, d- I don't know what the future holds. But um, whatever it is, it'll be involved in, so- in football in some shape or form. And I guess you said that the rights deal will come up and that will help make your decision Qatar actually is galloping up on us. Hopefully the tournament happens and we don't have, you know, the continuation of the COVID catastrophe, which puts things at risk. But if the World Cup happens as scheduled in 2022, uh, is there a chance that you'd hang on? Let's say that the rights holder, local rights holder, didn't take you on. Is there a chance you'd put your hand up 2006 style to do a hit on the World Cup for us? Um. Well, no, because, uh, you know, that, that tournament is still, where are we, May 21, that tournament is still 18 months away. So, <clears throat> you know, I, I, I can't hang on for a four-week tournament that's 18 months away without work. Um, so the, the short answer to that is no, really. Um, you know, I, I need to be uh, back in employment. I need to be earning. We've all got bills to pay. We've all got to put food on the table. I'm no different. Um, I'm certainly not rich enough to retire. So, uh, you know, I've got to get back in paid employment at some at some stage. And, uh, you know, hopefully that's here. And I've certainly not ruled that out. But um, if it's not, well, hey-ho, you know, that that's reality. And uh, I'll make my next move accordingly. And if we move just slightly off the art and the craft of commentating and the career of Simon Hill and look at the bigger picture of Australian football, which is something I'm pretty passionate about. and This could be a long chat. <laughs> you're as involved as anyone. And we haven't got quite as long as the uh, football-specific podcast. But can you tell us what should happen in the next little while? I just went to a game for Melbourne Victory. Uh, I think it was 
three weeks ago where there was it felt like there were less than two thousand people in yeah. the Amy Park, and it feels about as dark as things have felt since the Golden Generation and and the joy of that night in November of two thousand and five. What needs to happen if you had to just rattle it off on your on your fingers there simon is are there some are there some revolutionary moves we could make well not really there's no silver bullets but uh you know the old saying is it's always darkest before the dawn now i'm hoping that that dawn is is going to come with the new tv deal because you know that's that's a big part of the solution to be honest you know the the game needs a broadcaster that's going to give it some tlc because it needs it at the moment uh, not just in terms of you know the actual game day coverage, but proper promotion, and you know some uh, discussion of of the of the issues, some honest discussion of the issues, and honest discussion of the game in general. At the moment, you know the game feels as though it it's existing in some never never land because you don't know when the games are. There's very little publicity. There's very little football conversation, and the reason for that is. It's very few actual paid football journalists at the moment. You know, we've all been turfed out. So, mm. you know, th- this game is on the precipice at the moment. We've been there a few times in the past. I'm still confident it will not only survive but thrive, um, but it needs to make the right choices. Um, certainly the next TV deal, uh, it needs to invest, you know, money in particular and also psychological investments and belief in the game. We need to get the fans back uh, as a matter of urgency, particularly the active fans who, you know, provide the sort of atmosphere that I still think is unique to football in this country. Um, We have not listened to our customers, if you want to call them that, uh, closely enough over the last few years. And they're angry and I don't blame them. You know, they're not happy with what's gone on. They haven't been defended in public. They feel as though the clubs perhaps haven't listened to them as well. Uh, The governing body too. So, you know, the game's got to do a bit of listening and if it wants those fans back, it's got to give them what they want. Now, the answers to that are multifaceted, of course, but, you know, that that will be a start. It, it needs investment, but not just financial, emotional and belief in this game. And, you know, let's get back to giving the football fan what they want and stop trying to pander to the mainstream all the time. If we get our product right, if we get our game right, the mainstream will come along for the ride anyway. We've forgotten the football fans in this country and they are paramount in their importance. I agree so much with that. I mean, the reason I started this journey in 1997 was what I experienced in that MCG that night, which was life-changing as a sports fan. And it just upsets me as as a footy person. I'm an AFL person, and I've come to this game and seen almost no trouble in 25 years. You know, I've never seen a fist fight at the football. Yes, occasionally I've seen a flare thrown. Yes, occasionally I've seen a seat damaged. Mm. But the nature of large groups of supporters is different to the sitting side by side with your opponents that happens in AFL. And there are benefits to both. Yeah. And in particular, I would say that the atmosphere benefit goes with football, with round ball football. And yet there is a lack of understanding in Australia that the that the I guess the aroused emotions that go with that sometimes overspill and and the overspill is all that is concentrated on in the media, Correct. and it has to it has to stop. It has the, to be, you know, Tony. There's a, there is you call it a misunderstanding. You're right, but I think in in many places it's a willful 
misunderstanding of the game's culture because it doesn't suit the mainstream agenda. It doesn't suit the other codes. Um, you know, it, it fits the narrative for us to be the outsider codes because, you know, football is still perceived as being a threat. I mean, you know, you go back to 2015, 16, it's only five years ago. It's 62,000 people for a, a Sydney derby, 45,000 for a Melbourne derby. You know, th- those sorts of figures are not to be sniffed at. And, you know, I, th- I think there was a bit of a campaign that was mounted to put football back in its box, quite frankly. And it worked because we were not strong enough. We didn't believe enough in our own game to stick two fingers up to these people and go, stuff you. Our yeah. game's great. Our fans are fantastic. Instead, yeah. we defended the articles about the troublemakers. Ludicrous. Yeah. And, and I would urge anyone to st- – I mean, going to games where there are 1,500 people or 2,000 people is unfortunate. Um, but if you can get along to a game and actually take a side, like decide that you're going to be a Wanderers fan by hook or by crook and, and stick with them for two or three or four games and, and barrack. Because if you don't have emotional investment in this sport, it, it can look like people are tapping it around and, yes, there was a nice little act of skill, but ultimately I didn't care. Whereas it was that act of caring for me in 1997 that transformed everything. Tony, you, you've hit the nail right on the head there because a lot of people in this country say, oh, the A-League's not good enough. The A-League's poor quality, poor quality. It's a load of nonsense. There's poor quality games all over the world in every code of football, and there are great games as well. The difference, as you rightly pointed out, is the emotional investment in the team. And once you have that emotional investment in the team, I used to go and watch Man City when they're in the third division. The level of football was terrible. I didn't care. I still went every week. It's my team. So, you know, that's what we we were building and unfortunately what we partially self-destructed because in our desperate bid to belong to, to the mainstream. And, well, we do belong to the mainstream and nobody cares. Mm. So what, what good has it done us? Absolutely, it's a it's a tragedy, but hopefully, it's a recoverable tragedy, and we get Absolutely. a and the uh, the second division thing works, and, and Australian football, you know, starts yeah kicking goals again. Hope so. Um, yeah, I, Simon, I thought I'd go out. We have met at World Cups. I saw you in Russia, where you were a face of the Green and Gold Army as a as a host for one of the travelling groups of supporters in Moscow. Um, but I also had the joy of seeing and hearing you in full flight as a rock and roll musician. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, was a- I don't know about full flight. That was that was very tame by my standards. <laughs> One thing I noticed is that you're not a beginner. You've, you've, you really have played drums before, right? What's your, what's your drumming career like, Simon? Uh, my drumming career is very amateur. Um, now, I've always played in bands. Started off when I was 10 or 11. Got into the British, new wave of British heavy metal uh, genre of bands in the UK. Iron Maiden, Saxon, Motorhead, Judas Priest, all that sort of stuff. Loved it. So I, I wanted to be a drummer. Uh, my parents eventually relented and bought me a 40-pound secondhand uh, set of drums. And I've been playing ever since. Um, I, was, I was semi-serious about it in my teens. Um, I was with a band called Eye to Eye. We had a bit of management interest, a bit of record label interest. Um, but then we all went off to university. It all sort of fell apart. But I've continued to play in pub bands 
all my life. So I'm currently with a heavy metal cover band called Green Manalishi. Been with them for about five or six years. Absolutely love it. We gig in pubs around Sydney and uh, yeah, we, we play all the old Maiden classics and Motorhead and Priest and Sabbath and all that stuff. Yeah, bring it on. What's the best heavy metal song ever written? Oh, the best one ever written. Blimey. Um, I'll probably go with uh, Maiden's 666, The Number of the Beast. Because the devil sends the beast with wrath. <laughs> so, right. hell, it is a joy to hear your voice. Do you have a favourite uh, Iron Maiden lyric? Woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil sends the beast with wrath, because he knows the time is short. Let him who hath understanding reckon the number of the beast, for it is a human number. Its number is 666. <laughs> the voice of Simon Hill, the voice of football in Australia, the voice of the devil. Thank you for joining us, Simon. I've really loved our chat and uh, best of luck getting a job in the next few weeks and months. Thanks, Tony. Been a pleasure, mate. Always good to talk to you. On this very football-dedicated episode of Speakola, I will mention that I wrote a football book in 2006 called Australia United. Not easy to find nowadays, but if you are after a copy, you can email me, tony at tonywilson.com.au, and I'll send you one of the last 30-odd that I've got left. Um... You can also buy it as an ebook. I think it's in the Amazon and the Kobo stores. So if you want a fan memoir traveling around Germany, Adventures at World Cup Germany 2006, Australia United, give it a go. I mentioned this at the outset, but we do have a Patreon page as well now. You can support the show for as little as $3 a month and commit as much as you like. This year, I've received some one-off donations as well. Thank you to everyone who's helped out on that front. It's uh, really meant a lot. And it may be that if I can get recurring donations up to a significant amount, it'll mean more episodes can happen and this podcast can be something more than a hobby. For the speech of the week, I'm thinking there might be some rusted-on Socceroos fans who have got this far in the podcast. And I don't have an extended Simon Hill speech that I can play, which would be the custom with most episodes. But I did think there is actually audio of a competing broadcast that night, the 3AW broadcast that went out on the Macquarie Network, and it was hilarious. It was hosted by the 3AW station manager, Shane Healy. But really what makes the call is the special comments of Frank Farina. And Simon mentioned this in the interview, but Frank Farina had lost his job just six months before this World Cup qualifier. He was the previous man, the man ousted and to watch Hoos Hiddink succeed with the team there must have been some pain associated with that and yet the glory of this audio is to hear the joy and I guess generosity of spirit of Frank Farina I just love it I've listened to it a lot of times and if Simon Hill thinks they were unprofessional over at SBS so if you haven't heard it November 16 2005 Uruguay versus Australia, penalty shootout. This is wonderful. 
So, Harry Kuhl, as flashes go around the stadium, Carini's on his goal line. Penalty number one, the Liverpool player, Kuhl, scores! Sends Carini the wrong way. Australia one, Uruguay nil. Oh, Frank, if that's how we feel after one, how are we going to go after five of these? Oh, mate, I'll tell you what, I don't know if I'll still be alive. Someone give me a kick if I lie down, will you? Okay, well... We are 1-0 up in the penalty shootout and the goal scorer from Montevideo, the big man Dario Rodriguez, walks to the penalty spot for Uruguay and he will attempt to make it one all. For those who don't know the game of soccer well, both sides take five compulsory kicks. If it's dead level after that five, then we go 1-1, 1-1 until there's a winner. Schwartz are in goal. Rodriguez will kick on the left. He comes up, he stutters. Yes! It's been saved. Australia <laughs> is in front in the penalty shootout. Australia is in front. Come on! It is 1-0. Stay calm, boys. Stay I told calm. You. I told you, Schwartzer. Schwartzer has made a brilliant save. It was unbelievable. Rodriguez played a few games, Frank, as he ran in and he then did. he stuttered and he walked. Schwartz's save was marvellous. Yeah, well, Schwartz kept us in the game in, in Montevideo with two fantastic saves. And Luke, he's done it again tonight. Lucas Neal. Lucas Neal steps up. He was brilliant as a sweeper here tonight. A clean sheet for the Australians. Lucas Neal only have two steps at the ball. Yes! Lucas! Again sending the keeper the wrong way. Australia 2, Uruguay 0, with Uruguay having a shot to come. Now, if you've just turned on your radio around Australia and you're wondering where Stan Zamanik is, or where Bruce and Phil are, or where Graham Mabry is, they'll be on a little bit later, folks. But this is world-class sport in our own country, in this magnificent city of Sydney. And now, Australia with a 2-0 lead. And it's number seven. Yes, number seven, which it's is Barella. He plays for Shelter in Germany. He's had a great game. If he misses Australia's 2-0 up, here's the kick. It's in. Oh, Schwarzer it's gone under Schwarzer. It's Schwarzer gone under. went the right way, but Barella's put it in. Australia leads 2-1. And just repeating, both sides will have five compulsory kicks. So at the moment, two of those are down for both teams. It is 2-1 to Australia. Frank, Tony Vidmar steps up, I think, now. Yes, that's Tony Vidmar. And, uh, look, Tony's got experience. I hope for him he'll put it in. Look, I've got confidence in him. Oh, good on you, Frank. Let's hope he's got confidence in himself. This is the most suspenseful, most suspenseful passage of sport you'd ever likely to witness. Tony Vidmar, the 35-year-old in his 75th match for Australia, comes in and yes! Again, Carini beaten the wrong way. Australia three, Uruguay one. Uruguay have a kick to come. It's not over yet, but Australia hold a significant advantage. Uruguay to take their third kick, but they've missed their first penalty. Frank, Australia lead 3-1. We're not home yet, boys. Oh, not, not yet, but we're close. Vidmar actually took it with his less favoured foot, the left foot, so I think he was extremely confident there. Well, this is the young fellow Fabian Estoyanov. He wears number 13 for Uruguay, the famous sky blue. He'll kick on the right foot. He kicks. 
He scores brilliantly. He sent Schwartz the wrong way and he scores in the right-hand corner. But Australia does have that vital one-goal lead. It, it is 3-2 and Frank, who's jogging down? Viduka, it's a big V-bomber. He's coming in for the fourth. Mark Viduka, the Scottish Player of the Year in 2000. He was at Celtic. A fine product from Australia. He's the captain. Let's see in this most important match in his career if he can beat Carini in goals. Viduka steps up and Viduka misses. Oh dear. Viduka misses. You don't believe the pressure that is on these players. You know, you can, you can be in a situation like that where you've taken penalties all throughout your career and you come into a stadium that's filled with 83,000 Australians who want, are desperate for you to finish. It gets to everyone. It's unfortunate. I don't know whether he saved it, the keeper, or it's gone wide. But we're still alive. We're still there. Okay, well, it is now two all. And both sides it's dead had, even. had three attempts. That's it. We're back to square one. Uruguay's Marcelo Zalayeta steps up. It's dead level with two compulsory kicks to come. Zalayeta. Yes! Oh, it's been saved come by Schwarzer. It's a brilliant save by Schwarzer. <laughs> he reached across to his left and he got the left hand to it. It was a magnificent save. If Johnny Aloisi scores, we're at the World Cup. That's it. This kick for John Aloisi to put Australia into the World Cup. Aloisi, now. Frank, you know him. T take our listeners through. What's John Aloisi? He scored in the Confederations Cup against uh, Argentina. Oh, oh, look, I don't know. If this is the kick to get us to the World Cup. I don't care broadcast another bit on radio. Here we go, Aloisi. Yes! yes! Australian flags, Australia is through to the World Cup and it's great to be standing here next to a man who had a big part to play in Australia getting there, Frank Farina, tell us how you're feeling sir. I think we've lost Frank just for the minute, let's turn that button on for me Frankie. Frank. We go, got it, I can hardly talk, my voice is almost gone, incredible, it's deja vu, Mark Schwarzer will be a national hero as will everyone else there. Listen, it's unbelievable working with these guys for six years, the heartache, the problems we've gone through, and tonight, finally, we're there. We're at the World Cup. Oh, look, I don't know what I'm feeling. I well, think tonight great. I'm going to have a bloody, a stiff drink, oh. and most probably get down and have a, have a great time with the lads. Frank, it's absolutely been marvellous having you here as part of this. 
you showed a lot of character just being here. It was disappointing. You couldn't be out there coaching tonight. You've steered all of Australia with you through this unbelievable 120 minutes. That's it for the episode. I hope you found parts of it as joyous and uplifting as I did. Big thank you to you, Simon Hill. We need you to stay in Australia. Fox Sports or whoever gets the rights. Simon Hill must stay. I don't want to have to take to the streets with signs, but I am prepared to do that. Thank you to our donors and Patreon subscribers. Thank you to Dave Bridey for the music. Always appreciated. Love the theme. Thank you to Greenskin and Purple Skin Avocados. The website, greenskinavocados.com.au. A big thank you to the Socceroos and all the joy they've brought me. I've been to four World Cups following the team and it really has been such a great part of my life. If you, like me, are a bit of a football fan, I'm making a football documentary and it's called Ferenc Pushkas and the South Melbourne Hellas. It's about the great Ferenc Pushkas, the Hungarian legend of the 1950s, coming to South Melbourne Hellas in the late 80s as a coach, coaching them to the 1991 NSL Championship. Quite a remarkable story of a Hungarian in exile meeting the Greek community here in Melbourne and just love making it. Anyway, we have a fundraising page up for that film, crowdfunding the hundred odd thousand we need to get to the line. And if you go to the Documentary Australia website, which is in the notes of this episode, you could contribute and help us pay the 286 US dollars per second that FIFA need for footage clearances. Good on you, FIFA. What a benevolent organisation you are. That's the end of the episode. Thanks so much for joining us. We'll be back next time.